That's one of the things that uh, I, I hope and pray. Am I up, by the way, back there? At all you, I am. I'm just not connected. Is uh, and I, we have to remind ourselves of this, and I have to remind myself of this every Sunday morning. That um, this is not a, supposed to be a performance, right? I mean, there's a stage and there's lights, but really, uh, I had a professor once who taught us. You know, the performers in here are all of us, and that is we're performing for the pleasure of God um, in our worship. And um, and this is about family. This is about um, us being real people, honest people. And I hope this morning, as we open God's Word, we um, that you'll sense an, an honesty about the Scripture. And um, and I pray that that will come through in the way in which I present this. If and I'm just I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to continue on so um, he can start the recording. Um, if you're new with us, right, and you haven't been here, so you're catching us in the middle of a series of six messages. Or maybe you've been on vacation, you're part of the Parkway family, and, and um, you're just coming back in, and you're like, where are we? Well, let me just tell you where, we're are, where we are, and then, then I want to just dive in here to a, a very, very honest text, honest with life. Um, we have been studying Psalm 73, which is a, a rather remarkable and honest, I've said that word a lot, honest psalm about life. Um, it is a, a psalm that's written by a, a great spiritual giant of a man uh, uh, who is a poet, a prophet, a writer of scripture. His name is Asaph, and, and it's his own personal testimony of how um, when he saw disparity in the world around him, he, he, he had a, a, ended up with a, a jaded, cynical, um, darkened heart. And the, and the psalm's remarkable in that it, he tells a story honestly, and then he tells um, how God in his grace restored him. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story that I think God has designed to, to reach us at a very heart level, a very honest level. And, and we looked at the first part, and we kind of hit rock bottom um, this morning. Um, the turning point comes, comes next week. Um, but I wanted to draw a couple parallels before I look at this morning's verses, which are verses 13 through 16. Um, between the prodigal son story, this, uh, the parable that Jesus gave about the love of the Father for sinners, there's some par- striking parallels between that story and Psalm 73, and two, two um, uh, similarities in particular. And there are dissimilarities too, not exact um, parallels, but... Two of the parallels that are striking, now, one is, is that in each story, in the prodigal son story and in Psalm 73, um, there is this blessing, there is this lavishness that is poured on, from one perspective, the wrong people. Uh, in, the, in the prodigal son story, here's the, the, the father um, who has already given his inheritance to his youngest son who didn't deserve it, but he gave it anyway. And of course, he, he, he squanders it on reckless and um, uh, promiscuous living. And, and he comes back, and what does the father do? He gives him a ring and a robe and a fatted calf. And it's like, like the, 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 the one, the rebel, he's, he, he gets uh, lavish treatment. That's very similar to Psalm 73, where um, one of the problems that the psalmist has, Asaph has, is he looks around and it's like, seems like God is blessing the wicked and the arrogant with prosperity. And you know, everything comes from the Lord. So he would have had to deduce that God, you're the one who's, who's like prospering them. So that's the same in, in both stories. Another, the second striking similarity is that in both stories, there's a, there's a second party. In the prodigal son story, there's the, the oldest son. He's the closest to the father. He's the one who stuck around. He's the one who acted responsibly. He's the one who day in and day in, day out, just took care of his father's possessions and his farm or his ranch. So he was there the whole time. He was the faithful one. 
And uh, when he saw what his father did in showering blessing upon his sinful brother, well, he drew cold and dark, and um, he gets angry, and I believe judges his father to be unfair. In a similar sense, Asaph in this psalm, he looks at how God blesses the wrong people with prosperity. We looked at it last week, verses uh, 4 through 12. You know, they, they don't have trouble. They don't have pain. They're at ease. They're wealthy. Um, he looks at that, and as a result of seeing God bless the sinful people, he himself grows cold and dark, cynical, and jaded. So that's some striking parallels. Um, and the reason I think they're striking is because, or those, there are those parallels, is because um, their jaded hearts come from the same root. And I, I hope to show you that in just a moment. It comes from the same response of the heart. Um, uh, something that um, is a perennial temptation and um, can infect everyone in here. And maybe there are some here that have already been infected with the same kind of a dark, um, jaded view of God. Um, and I, I hope that the Spirit of God will use this, this text this morning to, to help you, um, to speak to you. Because we come to his, uh, you might consider them the rawest ver- uh, verses. Like, we get an inside peek into um, what's happening in his own heart. Um, up until this point, he's describing what's taking place outside him that confuses him. And now he, he, he talks about his, um, the state of his own being, his soul, what he's talking about in himself, conclusions he's coming to. It's that, you know, we, we, we all have those. We have these um, secret conversations that we talk to ourselves about, and most of us are, are, um, would never let out what we're really thinking, right? Um, sometimes we question, and if we're to be really honest in this room, I think that everybody at some point, uh, even as a Christian, a believer, says to ourselves, I wonder, does God really exist? Because I pray and pray and pray, but he doesn't answer me. Does he really exist? Those are heart conversations that most of us never talk about. Or, you know, what, what, the why question. Oh, man, why, why, if he does exist, did this happen to me? Uh, and we have those deep, deep conversations that most of the time never come out. Well, here in this passage, I think he lets it out for us to see. This is a, this is a man of God. This is a man who's kind of at the apex of leadership and worship and so forth. And this is what he writes. This is, like, like I said, this is the bottom of the hole. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It's tiring, laborious. I can't figure it out. In the first part, verses 13 through 14, he, he talks about his own religious devotion and how he feels about it, what he thinks about it. And the second part, you get the sense that he's kind of in a limbo. He's, he doesn't know where to go from here. He's stuck. So first part, verses uh, 13 and 14, he talks about his own religious uh, devotion. And when he says, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, he's talking about his devotion to the Lord. Um, heart and his hands talks about your inner and your outer, your soul and your action. In other words, he's saying, with the entirety of my life, I, 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 I have devoted myself to God, to the worship of God, to leading worship in God, to, uh, to writing songs about God, and in addition to that, to conforming my life to the precepts or the laws or the commands that he's given that are part of his relationship with me. 
And, and, and those things are good. Those should be true of Christians. It's not just Old Testament, New, New Testament believers. It's like, listen, if we love God and we trust Christ, then our lives should be aligned in terms of heart and action to what he's revealed for us. That, that's a good thing. Um, and I'm sure he saw it as a good thing. But now he's thinking, in light of everything that he's seen, he's, he's, he's thinking that all of that, his whole religious devotion to God, with God at the center, living his life for the Lord, we would say in our language, he feels like maybe pointless, which is what the word vain means, right? And the reason is this, that's verse 14. For, and here's, here's why it seems pointless, like this religious devotion to God. For all the day long I have been stricken. And rebuked every morning. So here's the picture. He looks outside and he sees people that aren't devoted to the Lord, aren't devoted to conforming their life to the standard of, of his Bible of the day, which is the law of Moses. And he sees they're, 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 as I said last week, living the dream. But him, he's the one who's meticulous in his his worship of the Lord, making sure that there's no other gods before the Lord, that there's no graven images, that he keeps the Sabbath day holy, that he doesn't bear false witness, that he doesn't murder, he doesn't steal, he doesn't covet. That's how God demanded that his people live in relationship to him. He says, for all of that, this is what I get in return. All the day long I have been stricken. We don't use that word stricken very often, do we? It's like, like when Old Testament used to say, and David smote the Philistines. We don't hear that word either, right? Stricken, just a passive of strike or punch or hit or wound. And it's not as if he's saying, I've been backhanded once. He's like, all the time I feel like this. Like, I get backhanded by life. Now, we might ask what the subject is of stricken. Stricken by whom? Perhaps he, by implication, he thinks it's the Lord. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm struck, I'm punched, I am backhanded all the time. They're living the dream. My life, in contemporary language, sucks. What do you say? And even the morning, right? And washed, oh, excuse me, and rebuked every morning. You know, Morning is like the, the fresh part of the day, right? So the sun comes up, and it's a fresh slate, a fresh start. We're told in the Bible that, you know, your mercies are new. Every morning, you pick up your cup of coffee. It's like, yes, it's a new day. Anything's possible. He's like, nope, even in the morning. <laughs> Rebuked, chastised, spanked. That's how I feel. So all this religious devotion to the Lord, and all he gets is backhanded. And for, because of that, he, he suspects, and this is the, probably the singular most striking, um, uh, scandalous word in the whole text. He says, all in vain. Pointless, useless, that's what vain means. It, it's empty. There's no return. There's no payoff whatsoever. All of this, living for the Lord, has no payoff whatsoever in my life. What that means is that somehow, in his worship of Yahweh, his heart became darkened to the point where he believed, in a twisted way, that he deserved more. Otherwise, he wouldn't use the word vain. Somehow, he believed that God 
owed him for all of his labors unto the Lord. And you know what that is? That is nothing more than another form of the disease we call uh, legalism, right? The belief that somehow if I, if I do enough, if I'm devoted enough, if I go to church enough and read my Bible enough, somehow like, like God owes me a better life. That's, 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 that, 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 that's in the background. That's, that, that's, that's underneath this. That's the kind of the, the situation. It's the underlying issue of his heart is this issue of God owes me. He's not fair. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said the word vain. As mentioned last week, I get the short end of the stick. And that's, that to me is the common root between Asaph and the older brother in the prodigal son story. Is that both of them see how the sinner, the wicked person, is getting the better life while he not so good of life. And the hidden belief is that God's being unfair to me. I deserve more. And if you say the word I, or feel like you deserve more from the Lord, that means you believe he owes you something. And you know, as I thought about this, I realized, you know, every one of us has this. You know how the doctors say we have this, these cancer cells that are in our body that our body naturally kills off? And well, I think every one of us has this legalistic gene in us because we're still infected by sin. This, this, this cell of legalism, this traveling around in our soul, it's just looking for a chance to take root. And when it does take root, and we start, however subtly at first, believing that I deserve more, I got shafted, um, God owes me, I should have a better life because I'm devoted to you, what that ends up doing is it strangles the joy of the Christian life and it just sucks out gratitude. And pretty soon you find yourself in a twisted, morose, sad, depressed, confused, angry, and ungrateful heart. That's, that's, that's where you end up. And all of us have that, those, those, those things in us. And most of the times those things that are already there come out when we begin comparing lives. And, and that's just what brings it out. It's already there, but it, it brings it out, right? That's, you feel content and happy with what the Lord gives you until you find something better, right? You remember, um, the, it's one of the first video games I can ever remember. My parents got it for us for Christmas in the 70s, and it was called Super Pong. Remember Super Pong? It was the upgraded version from Pong, right? And it was like, we had an old black and white TV that really only got three channels, because all we had was rabbit ears with aluminum foil and um, we hooked that thing up and for the younger folks in here who don't know what like super pong whatever it's way under my feet not over my head uh, it's like you know just a there's no like massive paddles and buttons where you can control everything in the universe it's just like you got a little dial and that's it and a little paddle goes up and down on this side and that's that would be like my guy and my sister's guy another little little white strip that goes up and down as you turn the paddle and the little like tennis ball, only it's white, it's not a tennis ball, bounces back and forth and gets faster and faster. And, you know, you can feel the, the wonder and excitement of, pow, pow, you got him. Pow, pow, pow. Past my sister's door, yes, I got you. Two out of three, you know, kind of thing. That was super exciting. You know, my, my friend Steve, this real Steve, Steve Barger, lived right up the street. I was so happy with Super Pong until he got the Atari 2600. 
You can play Space Invaders and you can play Asteroids. No kids play that anymore, right? Unless it's retro day. And um, it's just immediately, it's like, well, you skimped out on us, Mom and Dad? Come on, Super Pong? You just got the Atari 2600. Pretty soon you find yourself ungrateful because deep down you think, associate the level of the gift with the value. And, um, and, and that, that's, that's, that's part of our fallenness. Some of you do this on Facebook. A lot of people do it on Facebook, you know. Get on there and you're like, wow, that couple looks so happy. Family is all smiling. Look at the kids look perfect. Look at the white teeth, those yellow teeth, nothing. Oh, and they're in Cancun. I've never been to Cancun. And pretty soon you feel like, man, I somehow, I, I didn't, I, like, when God dealt the cards, like, I didn't get a straight flush or a four of a kind or three of a kind. Sorry to talk poker language, but you know what I mean. You got all the wrong cards. And it's easy to feel like when you look that way, we look at life that way, and we do. And by the way, the sun always shines on Facebook, right? You never see a picture of a couple fighting with each other on Facebook. It just doesn't happen. Or the kids angry and flipping the bird at mom and dad. You just don't see that. It just doesn't happen. Because everybody puts on their best on Facebook. That's an illusory world in which it makes you feel like maybe you have less. And it's just really easy when that's what you're looking at in the world to come to the conclusion that, man, I, 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 I think I feel like I deserve more. Um, I feel like I deserve more. And, you know, when we start to feel that way, it's really easy. Just, that's, what, that's what ASAP did. He was looking at the world. This is what they have. This is, I'm getting spanked all day long. This is my life. And it seems like my religion is vain and pointless. When, 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 when a heart sours like that, it means that the heart has lost a touch. Um, I don't like the word touch. It has lost its rootedness in two essential fundamental, fundamental foundational truths of the Bible that are absolutely crucial for every Christian, not only to know, but to believe and to grasp every day. And one of those forgotten truths that leads to this kind of a, a jaded heart um, is the simple fact that God owes me nothing. On two counts. One count is that God has created it all, and therefore he owns it all. And anything we offer him, however good, belongs to him. There's nothing meritorious about anything we offer. You're your gifts, your talents, your skills, the vocal abilities, your ability financially or in terms of a business mind or mathematics or whatever it is, that, that's a gift. And um, so whatever you do with it belongs to him. He doesn't owe you anything. You owe him everything. You know, Jesus made that point, and a lot of people skip over this uh, part in Luke 17 where he's talking to his disciples. He says, so also you. When you have done all that you were commanded, in other words, you've conformed your life, you've lived for me, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's a, that's a pointed statement. After you've done everything that I've commanded you, now the contemporary mind would say, I've done everything, now what are you going to do for me? He's like, no, you're going to say... I'm still unworthy because what I offer you, Lord, by way of my obedience is already yours. 
You've called me to do that, and that is, that, that, that's your basic expectation of life. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing. But the second part of that is, is the simple fact that he owes us nothing because we are, by nature, sinful people. Um, we are, by nature, sinners and therefore un, unworthy of God's blessing. Easy to say, harder to believe. But when your heart sinks into the fact, sinks in, or maybe the truth, truth soaks in, you're like, I really believe I don't deserve it. I like God doesn't owe me anything. Uh, that is the first step towards a rediscovery of joy and gratitude. I mean, God didn't owe you a perfect wife or a perfect husband. He didn't owe you a mediocre wife or mediocre husband. He didn't owe you a husband or wife at all. He doesn't owe you good, obedient children. He doesn't owe you mediocre in their obedience children. He doesn't owe you children at all. He doesn't owe you 72 years of life or 80 years of life. He doesn't owe you a minute of life. He doesn't owe you a breath. He doesn't owe me a drink of water in he doesn't owe you a high-paying job or a low-paying job. He doesn't owe you a job at all. He doesn't, he doesn't owe you for being here this morning. The simple fact that you're here this morning is a pure act of grace on his part. He owes us nothing. Nothing. Period. And if, speaking metaphorically, if a tiny crumb were to fall from God's table all the way down to earth. A, a, a crumb so small that a mouse would need it. A crumb so small that a microbe would pass it by. Let's just call it a subatomic crumb from the table of God's goodness. If a subatomic particle of God's blessing, even if it lasted half a second, fell into your hands, we should be absolutely and 100% elated and grateful. Like, I can't believe I got a subatomic crumb from the table of God, right? That's how you feel. You don't feel that way. We don't feel that way because we have grown familiar and we have taken it for granted. And at the deepest levels, we don't really believe that God owes us nothing. And that's, you might say, that, that's, a, that's negative to say, Dan, God owes us nothing. No, 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 it's not negative. I mean, it, in one sense, I suppose it is. But you know what? Until you get to that place, you'll never be free. Until you get to that place, you'll never find gratitude welling up in your heart. God doesn't owe me anything. But until you get to that place, you won't experience a renewal of joy in your life. And here's why. Because... If God owes us absolutely nothing, then when you take a breath, that's a gift. When you have a glass of water, it's a gift. If God was to, on his great majestic table, drop his name off so that we could hold on to those four letters in Hebrew, and know that his name is Yahweh. We are blessed beyond belief. 
if God dropped words, not just names, but words off of his table, and we had his words, we'd be beyond blessed by grace. He, didn't, he doesn't owe us that, but he, like a waterfall of words he's given to us. See, the, 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 the amazingly beautiful and winsome and life-altering, gratitude-producing, joy-producing truth is that God is not a God who is in his heart to give crumbs to, to people who don't deserve it. Right? He does, he's not a God who says, send a crumb over as a gift, right? It's like, no, the most precious essence in the entire universe. That, the essence which, which is what it means to be alive in the truest and explosive sense, to be rejoicing in the truest and explosive sense, to be powerful in the truest and most explosive sense is God himself, right? And he's like, listen, I don't owe you anything, not a breath, not a water, not even a subatomic particle of blessing, but I'm going to go ahead and give you me. Me, I'm going to give you. No, I'm going to give you a part of me. This is known as my son, also known as Jesus. He's the eternal one. And you know what? Know it. This is my beloved son. This is, I've known him since before time ever started ticking. Every time I'm filled with joy when I see him. And he loves me. And, and I, I'm speechless at how much I love him. I'm sending him off the table to you. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to throw himself on a, a humble tree naked. And he's going to do that for you. You know why? Because I don't want you down there. I want you in the table up here. Now the picture starts to become clear. He owes us nothing, but in Christ he has lavished on us everything, himself and the promise of a whole new world. Okay, what are you feeling right now? Anything? Nothing? Thanks, Paul. Somebody... Listen, okay, we've just reflected on two truths right now. God owes us nothing, and I hope you felt it, and I hope you believe it. At the same time, we see that the God who owes us nothing offers us everything in his son. And what's happening to your heart right now? Are you thinking to yourself, man, I wish I didn't have to drive my Corolla. If you have a Corolla, hey, you don't deserve it. Drive it and be thankful. <laughs> no, you're not, you're not thinking about that at all. You know why? Because you've gotten your eyes off of the comparative disparity of the world and you've realized you're part of something a lot bigger. That God doesn't owe you anything, but he's granted you everything. And it's really the only way out. In a way where you can live in freedom and joy regardless of how much or how little you have. And um, that's where, church, we have to keep our eyes and our hearts. And that's where Asaph needed to be. He had forgotten, I think, that he was a sinner. He knew it theologically. I mean, he, is a, he knew the story of the Garden of Eden. He knew his own heart. He knew he was a sinner. But he'd forgotten that God owed him nothing. And he'd forgotten that, you know, when God saved Israel out of Egypt, he didn't save them because they were more righteous than anybody else. God, in fact, said, you know what? You're just as wicked as everybody else. In fact, I suspect that God chose them because they're stiff-necked and stubborn. Just to say, 
I rescued you out of Egypt by grace alone in the same way that God says to us, I, I have rescued you by, by my sheer grace and grace alone through my, my, my son. I'm going to leave this um, Asaph hanging, at least till next week, um, because in the final verses, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of let us finish in, in, um, in limbo you get the sense that he doesn't know where to go from here. I feel like my, my devotion to God is vain when all I get is misery. He's in a dark place. It's a, that's, that's a good word for us, right? When you're in a dark place, sometimes you think, man, I'm so far gone, God's never going to retrieve me. But you know what? He's an example of the fact that's not true. But you get a sense that he's kind of in limbo. If I had said, I will speak thus, and I think what he means is if I had said my conclusions about God, that this is all futile and vain and pointless and empty, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I think what he means there is that if, when a person verbalizes their conclusions about God, that as he declares what he just told us from his heart, namely, it's all vanity, that in effect what he ends up doing is joining the ranks of the wicked. That is, he defects from the community of faith, the generation of God's children, and he finds himself on the outside. So in the one sense, I think verse 15 is his way of saying, like I, I feel like this is vain and pointless, but I can't give up on my faith. I, I can't defect. And you know, I've known people, Christians, who have felt that way. They, for whatever reason, circumstantial, or otherwise, they've come to a place where they kind of wish that they could disbelieve, but they can't bring themselves to do it. So they kind of live in this uh, jaded doubt, disbelief, and yet still believe. And on the other hand, he says, when I thought about how to understand this, wrap my head around it, resolve it in my head so that I could move on, he says, I... I can't do it. So he's caught between defection, which he won't do, and not understanding, which is a hard place to be in. And, you know, sometimes God's people are there. I know friends who have been there, and some maybe right here in this church. It's like you're, you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place. Your joy is gone. Your gratitude's gone. You are in a place where you're jaded. Uh, maybe you feel like God's been unfair to you, but you know I, I, I believe it, and I can't. I'm, here, I'm almost here against my will because I, I can't not believe. At the same time, I don't understand God. Well, that's where he's at. And that's where we're going we're to leave him until next week. But if you're in that place of limbo, and you only you know if you are, just I would encourage you to wait. And like him, he didn't defect, even though he couldn't understand. And, and I believe that God will not leave his people in that state of limbo forever. Because as we're going to see, and I've seen this over and over in Scripture, um, after the nighttime, God is faithful to bring a sunrise to restore. And that's the good news. Yes. So let's leave it hanging.